The structure of this passage is very simple. Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 9. This short little excerpt simply tells us what God is going to do. Pretty straightforward. The aim of tonight's message is that we would feel and be able to say with those in verse 9, let us also be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The first thing that we should see is the geographic setting of events, which were then future at the time that they were written. In verse 6, it says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast, etc., etc. On what mountain? The end of chapter 24 gives us the answer. The Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. On this mountain, that is Mount Zion, Jerusalem. On this mountain. And we should note the time frame of this prophecy. It wasn't A.D., but B.C. And frankly, that's the most important thing to note. This was before the coming of Christ. This is not prophesied after the death, resurrection, ascension of Christ. This was prophesied before. So that's just a simple sense of the context of this passage. And it's basically just telling us, on Mount Zion, in Jerusalem, at a future time, a time future from when it was written, the Lord is going to do all these things. So what things is it that the Lord is going to do? The first thing the Lord is going to do is make a feast for all peoples. At some day, which was future to Isaiah, the Lord would make a feast for all peoples. Don't be too quick to categorize this as merely figurative. For one thing, we are soul and body. We're created in God's image, but we are also formed out of the dust of the earth. God is raising, resurrecting, redeeming both soul and body. You may remember in 1 Corinthians it says that we're going to be raised in the same manner as Christ was raised. Christ's body was eminently different from our current bodies in that he could pass through locked doors apparently as he came to the disciples in the upper room. And yet it was, in many ways, very similar to our bodies because they thought they saw a ghost. Jesus said, do you have anything here to eat? We have a piece of broiled fish. So Jesus took it and ate it. So see, does a ghost have a body like I have? So don't... Be too quick to think there's no possible way that God could really make us a feast because we're going to be disembodied spirits 
in eternity. No, quite to the contrary. God is raising us soul and body from the grave. Many have noted that food is often a part of the best times, the best memories. If you think about it, many of the best times you've had, many of your memories involve food. Maybe you remember specific events, specific incidents. You might not even necessarily remember the food itself. The best thing about the memory might not be the food, necessarily, but there's a fair chance that some of your best memories involve food. A meal at someone's house. A meal in a restaurant. A romantic dinner when you proposed or something like this. Perhaps sitting at home in a more casual setting on couches eating pizza or fried chicken and living with some friends. There's a fair chance though that some of your best times that some of your best memories involve food. Maybe you remember that every Sunday when you were growing up, your granny would prepare you a big Sunday lunch or something like that. Or you remember every day when your parents would come home from work, you'd sit together at the table and eat or something like this. For many people, their best memories, their best times involve food. It follows from this that there's something special about gathering together around a meal. Something special about table fellowship. For whatever reason, it is part and parcel of the way that God has wired us as human beings. And so don't be too quick to think that there's no way God would actually be preparing a feast of literal food and literal wine for us. He just might be. Don't be too quick to assume God's not actually going to feed us. Don't be too quick to assume that God himself in the person of his son won't actually eat with us. What did he say? In Matthew chapter 26 verses 27 through 29. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So don't be too quick to assume that Isaiah 25 isn't talking about choice cuts of meat and wine. But don't hesitate here, on the other hand, don't hesitate here to see here symbolism of total holistic provision. This can be both literal and symbolic at the same time. We may well eat with God of choice cuts and good wine. And this may well symbolize more than that, just the total provision that God makes for our blessedness. 
Imagine two fishermen whose boat has somehow sunk in a storm. And they're now clinging to some piece of driftwood or maybe perhaps just held afloat by their life vests somewhere east of Barbados in the Atlantic. And one of them says to the other, don't worry, we're soon going to be eating bread and twos and drinking Banks beer again at home. In such a case, you understand he means it full well, literally. But it's also a symbol of deliverance. It's comforting words to his companion. In 1555, two Protestants were led out to be burned at the stake as heretics under Bloody Mary, the Roman Catholic Queen. John Leaf, who was 19 years old, and John Bradford, who was 45 years old. And in their final moments, as they were tied to the stake, and as they prepared to have the flames lick up their mortal bodies, Bradford, the older of the two, turned to his 19-year-old friend and said, Be of good comfort, brother for we shall have a happy supper with the Lord tonight. You see, the food can also stand for bounteous, total, holistic provision, deliverance, salvation from this place of need and this place of hunger and this place of suffering to recline at table with Jesus and to drink that wine anew with him in his father's kingdom may well be literal and yet it stands for the blessedness that is to come. It's not mere bread and water that we see prophesied here. It's not a peanut butter sandwich but fine wine and choice cuts of meat that God says he's preparing for his people. Everything we need and more shall be meted out to us by the Lord of hosts. And here we should note that the prophet speaks of that which is going to come to us in and through the person of Jesus Christ. Remember, this was written B.C. But how is it that in Mount Zion, in Jerusalem, the Lord is going to prepare bounty? How is it that there, in that place, He's going to make a feast for all peoples? How is it that on Mount Zion, in Jerusalem, He's going to make a feast for Bajans and Canadians and Americans and Ethiopians and Australians and the Chinese? How is it that on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem he's going to prepare fine cuts of meat and good wine? All the bounty that God's people long for and desire, how is it that he's going to give it to them there? That that's where the feast is going to be prepared. What other referent could it have but the coming of the Son? The coming of the servant of Isaiah prophesied over and over and over again in that book. 
My servant, my servant, the servant, the servant of the Lord. Isaiah 53, we remember probably the most famous of the servant songs. You remember? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Remember, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was the servant of the Lord. Isaiah looks forward to a servant of the Lord who will come and usher in a state of blessedness. He's looking forward to that servant no less in 25 as in 53. Though it's not as explicit. The whole tenor of the book of Isaiah is anticipating the blessedness, the salvation of the Lord, which comes to us in the servant of the Lord, who we know in hindsight is Jesus of Nazareth. And so God, in the person of his son, prepares a feast of choice cuts of meat and fine wine for his people. And his people are not just the Jews, but all peoples, this passage tells us. Gentiles are welcome to this feast, which is prepared on Mount Zion. Gentiles are welcome to this feast, which is prepared in Jerusalem. What did Jesus say to the woman at the well? Salvation is from the Jews. You see, it's not just a seed of Adam, but a seed of Abraham a seed of Isaac, a seed of Jacob, in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And he comes and he's born of woman, born under the law. Where? In Israel. Jesus, we read his genealogy at the beginning of Matthew. The fulfillment of Jewish expectation comes to us as a Jew to prepare for us on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, this feast, which will be for Jew and Gentile alike, all who will come. Christian, what you lack here, you will not lack forever. God is preparing bounty for you to come. God has prepared, I should say, bounty for you, which is yet to come to you, but has been prepared in the person of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And unlike an evening with good food and good friends, here, which always must come to an end, much to our chagrin every time. When we sit down to sup with the Lord, it need never end. For one thing, we'll be in eternity and we'll have all the time in the world. And for another thing, death shall never interrupt us. In verse 7, it says, and he that is the Lord will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. Some commentators 
take that to be the ignorance, the blindness of the nations. As it says in 2 Corinthians 3, that when Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. And then in 2 Corinthians 4, it goes on to say, but God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of his glory in the face of his Son. The veil is taken away when the Spirit of the Lord operates upon us. Some commentators take this verse in that sense and say that the veil will be taken away from the nations. That though they were largely excluded from the number of God's people in Old Testament times, that they were behind a veil, as it were, blind to the things of God. In the gospel era, God will take away that veil and gather in the Gentiles. That's how some commentators take it. It's a true idea, but I think in view of verse 8, it's much more fitting to take the covering or the veil in verse 7 as a burial shroud. Because what does it say right at the beginning of verse 8? He will swallow up death forever. They used to bury people in a shroud covered by fabric. Cover up their bodies before they would put them in the ground with a veil, with a covering. Here it says that God will take away the veil, the covering that lies over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. This is a classic way of explaining things in ancient Hebrew literature. You say one thing and then you state the same thing another way. He will take away the veil, the covering. What, what, what veil? What? He will swallow up death forever. Therefore, it's the burial shroud. See, the nations were pre- being prepared for a funeral. The nations stood condemned before a holy God for Adam, their first father, had sinned. And in him, everyone became guilty and corrupt. They were wrapped in a burial shroud, as it were. But through the servant, God will take the burial shroud off the nations. As Jesus stopped that funeral processional, where the widow's son at Nain was laying dead upon that bier, Jesus stopped it and raised the boy. Here in Isaiah, the prophecy is that God will stop the funeral procession of the nations. That the nations are on their way to being buried, put six feet under. But in the servant, God is going to remove the burial shroud. He's going to swallow up death forever. This is the second thing that God will do. The first thing, he's going to prepare a feast. The second thing is, he's going to swallow up death forever. Again, remember that it is in Mount Zion, Jerusalem, that God will do this. What could this refer to? 
but the death and resurrection of Christ. How else? How else could we understand this passage? But that in Christ Jesus, God has swallowed up death forever. In Christ Jesus, God has removed the burial shroud from the nations. One commentator notes that death appeared to swallow up Jesus. But in reality, Jesus swallowed up death as he rose from the grave, breaking its power over his people. Another commentator points out that in the ancient Near East, the god of death was named Mot, and he was conceived of as, guess what? Swallowing up his victims. This personification of death would come and eat you. And here, to the ancient Near Eastern people, God writes that he himself will swallow up death forever. Lot's not going to eat you, God says to his people. I'm going to eat Mott. Another way of looking at it is that Jesus swallowed death so that we could swallow choice cuts of meat and good wine. You see, God in Christ swallows up death. He removes the burial shroud. How? By sending his son to the cross to suffer, to die, to be wrapped in a burial shroud and laid in a tomb so that we never will be. So that Jesus can say to his people, he that believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. So that we can look forward to not tasting death, but tasting choice cuts of meat and good wine in God's kingdom forever. You see, the gospel is that Jesus takes the punishment that we deserve and offers up the obedience to God that we should have so that we don't get with that which by rights should have come to us, namely punishment for our sin. But we get what we didn't deserve, but Jesus actually did. A feast. We deserved hell. Jesus deserved choice cuts of meat and fine wine. But Jesus suffered under the wrath of God, and we get choice cuts of meat and fine wine. Jesus tasted that so we could taste this. Jesus swallowed that so we could swallow this. This is the gospel. God will swallow up death. Attendant to this blessing, and this is the third thing that this passage tells us that God will do, is that God will wipe away our tears. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. This is reminiscent of Revelation chapter 21, isn't it? When the heavenly city descends, and we read that the dwelling place of God is with men, and God will wipe away our tears, and there will be no more sorrow, or crying, or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. 
whatever you're crying about now, one day you won't be crying about it anymore. The Lord is going to comfort you. The Lord is going to take away the reproach of his people. Many mock and scoff. Even as we talked about this morning in Second Peter 3, where is Jesus? He's supposed to be coming back again. I haven't seen him yet. Many mock and scoff. Oh, the Lord will wipe away all your tears one day. You're excited about a, a feast that's coming down the line. You're going to have some choice cuts of meat and some fine wine. That's just a pie in the sky. Fairy tale, imagination. You're a fool to believe that. The Lord isn't going to wipe away all your tears. You're never going to have that feast that you're waiting for. This is the way that the world often looks at us and talks about us and sometimes even say, says to our face. But the Lord will take away the reproach of his people on that day. As he wipes away our tears. As we are raised at the return of Christ and live with him forever. Even as we talked about this morning in a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. God will take away our reproach. The response of his people will be on that day, verse 9. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us, and this is the Lord. We have waited for him. It almost sounds like we're speaking to those who cast dispersions upon us and our hope, doesn't it? Like we're speaking to the world. Remember what you told me? Well, this is the Lord. We have waited for him. We've waited for his salvation. Remember you mocked? Remember you scoffed? This is the Lord that we've been waiting for, that he might save us. This is him. You see? And then this last line must be one of God's people speaking to another. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. It's as if we turn to the world and say, this is him. This is the one we waited for. And then we turn to one another and we say, let us be glad and rejoice in our salvation. We're no longer an expectant people. We're no longer a journeying people. We're no longer a pilgrim people. For we have crossed the River Jordan and we are in Canaan. We're no longer dwelling in tents, but we're in the land of promise. We're no longer waiting for Jesus to descend from heaven at the last trumpet with the cry of victory. Because this is him. 
This is the one we've waited for. We're no longer simply salivating as we wait for the feast. Look at it. It's right there on the table. The time has come. The wait is over. Here we are. Here God is. Here's his son. The servant prophesied in Isaiah. Here's the feast that was prepared on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And look, there's the Lord coming down the line, dealing one by one with each of his children, wiping every tear from their eyes. My turn's coming soon, and your turn's coming soon. Here we are in that blessed state, which will never end. It's here. This is the future hope of God's people. Like I said, the structure of this passage is very simple. It just prophesies what God is going to do. And I just told you what God is going to do. It's really straightforward. For those of us who are trusting in Christ, this is our hope. It belongs to us. We may take hold of it. This is what we have to look forward to. This is what God has done and is doing and will do for us in Christ Jesus. Those who are outside of Christ obviously should trust in Him. You're going to miss out on this blessedness. When the wine is poured, you'll find that you don't get a glass. When the meat is cut, you're going to find that you don't get a plate. If you're outside of Christ, the Lord will not wipe away your tears, but you will be cast into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Come into the blessedness of God's people by faith in Jesus Christ. Put your confidence in the one who swallowed up death so that you might swallow good meat and good wine. Come in. And for those of us who are trusting in Christ Jesus, who are already trusting in Christ Jesus, let us feel and say together with those in verse 9, let us also be glad and rejoice in God's salvation.